Good morning. I've had the wonderful pleasure of combining both my preaching ministry with a medical ministry. And so it came out in my topic. I knew that on a Sunday morning after breakfast and before discharge that um, I needed something that would hold people's attention. So I decided to uh, combine an apocalyptic portion and a medical portion. So the last call, we preachers always use things like the last call. It has an apocalyptic ring to it. And this because of what is he really talking about? But we're really going to talk about the health ministry and the social determinants of health. I hope if I'm successful today to make you a little uncomfortable. Uh, I remember one preacher told me once, he said, your role is to go and bring comfort to the afflicted and then to afflict the comfortable. So I don't know if you're afflicted or comfortable this, this morning. Either way, we're going to try to, to work with you. I want to talk to you about why the equally created die unequally. Since 2004, the Institute of Medicine has essentially acknowledged the existence of racial and ethnic health disparities in our society. As physicians, depending on where you've trained, you've seen the outcomes of these disparities in your residency training programs and your fellowships, where patients and certain communities from certain ethnic groups will have significant problems. These disparities commit America's minorities to having excess burdens from disease, morbidity, mortality, and these, this excess burden of, of a disease is also accompanied by shocking disparities in the treatment and the outcomes in these patients. Some of the major studies that have been done in this area have been seen in the book, I think it was put out in 2004, um, called Unequal Health. Uh, it was the I Institute of Medicine uh, report. And essentially, the book, when it first hit, was somewhat controversial. The Bush administration sequestered the book for about six months before it was actually released. So those who had a chance to, to read the, the study were coming out talking about the study. Um, and what it found out is that racial and ethnic minorities in this country die of disproportionate numbers of almost every disease you can imagine, hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, at rates that are significantly higher than their, non, than their, their white counterparts. And it begins to make us ask some kinds of questions, like what's going on in the community that causes these high rates of disease and death? They also found out, even when those patients present for, tr for treatment, that their treatment options are handled disparately by the medical profession, which means that uh, an African-American, in fact, there's a great study that was done. They took an African-American and an Anglo man, and they gave them the same biography. These are actors. They gave them the same kind of biography to take into the, e into the ER, and they went in complaining of uh, left-sided chest pain, crushing, radiating to the neck, down the arm. They were both told that they were engineers, trained at the same kind of Ivy League schools, similar income, similar insurance. And they found that on average, the white patient more than three or four times was offered appropriate care as compared to the black patient. 
no one thought that they actually needed to have a coronary artery angiogram or perhaps go to cabbage. And so it was a, a, what we call a disparity. Now let's look at healthcare disparities in their broader context. Health disparities are experienced in a context, uh, in a broader context than most public health practices fully address. The excessive burden of disease that characterizes both black and Hispanic and other, other minorities in particular may be attributable to medical causation. But disparities need to be understood as a mosaic. Let me show what I mean by that. Health disparities are not an isolated phenomena, but are created in a mosaic of complex interactions within the natural, political, social, and economic environment. I wish we could live outside of all those, but all of those affect us. So what's going on on Wall Street right now affects everybody. Have you looked at your 401k plan recently? Have you thought about the value of your house? Have you looked at what's going on in the state of California in terms of its budget or many other states? We all live in the context of these. Significant progress in eliminating health disparities will not occur in a vacuum, but will be accomplished when we challenge the environmental determinants of health. In this room are probably a collection of some of the best lifestyle physicians and practitioners in the world. But what we need to do cannot be done from the context of an individual practicing one-on-one. -on -one. To deal with health disparities, you have to actually begin to coalesce and work with others in our discipline and outside of our discipline to make changes in the communities in which we serve. Let's talk about some of the social determinants of health. We all know that being poor is not good for your health. That's why all of us do our best not to be poor. Poor people have a higher burden of disease, higher burden of illness, live in worse housing, um, have poor access to good nutrition, and therefore all, the, all of the side effects of being exposed to those environmental factors are higher. Racism. Racism is a factor in this country in terms of health disparities. What I call educational misadventures. What is an educational misadventure? Try attending an inner city urban high school and then apply to college. It's going to be tough to get into any college because the average child coming through most inner city urban high schools probably only reads at a sixth or seventh grade level upon graduation. So what are their options? You know, we tell people all the time, education is your option. Well, education is the option if you're in a school that actually is committed to your educational success. If you're in a school that's only, only committed to moving you through, then you're not going to have much of an education. High levels of incarceration, we're going to talk about that later. But in minority communities, there are large numbers of people who are incarcerated. And the, these incarcerated individuals are not only removed from community, but also exposed to a whole new spectrum of disease while in incarceration. And then they come back into the community. One of the things that we find in high levels of incarceration in, in poor communities is that this has also affected the spread of HIV AIDS. Can I give you an example? Here in the state of California, you cannot pass out condoms in state penitentiaries to inmates. The reason you can't, because the state of California passed a law that, that has prohibited any form of sexual contact between men in prison. Men have 
men have sexual contact in prison not because they are, they are gay, it is sex of convenience. So the state of California said you can't pass out condoms because we don't allow these men to have sex. So I said, let me understand that. You mean you've got a prison full of people who are in prison because they have no respect for the law. And then you pass the law that says they cannot have sex while they're in prison. And you expect that those people who are in prison will obey that law while they have disobeyed all other laws that got them into prison in the first place. And so these men come out of prison infected with HIV, but they are essentially heterosexual. And so they take the disease back into communities and infect women who then infect children. And so incarceration for minority communities has a major impact upon the HIV spread in those same communities when these men come out of jail. Low self-esteem is another social determinant. When people don't feel good about themselves, when their image about themselves is negative, they'd have negative habits. If you don't care about yourself, then you don't care about others. So why would I hesitate to shoot you in a drive-by when I don't think I'm gonna live past my 16th birthday anyway? Urban overcrowding, you, I'm sure you've seen studies about the impact of urban overcrowding in terms of health status. When you put too many people in too close a proximity to each other, you just begin to create a lot of stress and spread infectious diseases that are very communicable. Malnutrition, malnutrition in, the, in, in poor communities is not the same as you see in malnutrition in other countries. Malnutrition in America, for the most part, is calorie caloric excess. It is a great availability of food to the masses, and especially poor food and um, junk food. Inside most poor communities, you can always find a McDonald's, a Jack in the Box, a liquor store on every corner. It's hard to find an actual supermarket that has groceries and vegetables and fruit that are available at, at good prices. So when you take a patient in your office, if your office, if you're having a patient who's coming from poor communities and you give them a lifestyle prescription that included um, good nutrition and diet, when those folks go back into the communities where they came from, they're not going to find any of what you've asked them to find accessible at a price that they can afford. So let's look at the desperate environment that some of the patients we are going to deal with live in. We talked about poor education and a dysfunctional school-home nexus leads to dropouts. There's a school um, about 100 miles from here in Los Angeles called Crenshaw High. Crenshaw High has a dropout rate somewhere around 50 to 60% of its students who start as freshmen drop out before they become seniors. Students who drop out are more likely to live poor and students who drop out of school are more likely to become arrested because they have no education. They have no way to earn a living. What do you expect them to do? And they will tell you, well, crime's all I had as an option. So I slung drugs for a living. I got into extortion for a living. I joined a gang. Poverty spawns malnutrition, obesity, isolation, violence, and overall poor health status. Let's look at race disparities in education. White adults were more likely than blacks and Hispanic adults to have a college degree. Here's some numbers. 33% of white adults 
have at least a bachelor's degree in 2005, while only 17% of black adults and only 12% of Hispanic adults had such degrees. 49% of Asian Americans had at least a bachelor's degree in 2005. How about income? White households had incomes that were two-thirds higher than blacks and 40% higher than Hispanics in 2005. And here's some median income numbers. White households, the median income was 50,000. Blacks, 30. Hispanics, 36. Asians, 60,000. I'm actually looking to be adopted by an Asian family, so if you know any who are looking to, to do that, just let me know. If we look at poverty rates, only 8.3% of whites were poor, while 24.9% of blacks, 21% of Hispanics, 11% of Asians. How about disparities in home ownership? Home ownership grew after World War II, due largely to um, government programs, GI Bill and other programs that have made it affordable for veterans to buy homes. Black and minority families were left out because of discrimination and the effects have still been felt today. This is according to Lance Freeman uh, in his work. Um, if we look more, 75% of white households owned their homes, owned their homes in 2005. I think with the financial downturn, that number may be lower. Um, at that time, only 46% of blacks and 48% of Hispanics owned their own households. These racial gaps have probably increased over the past 25 years, and homeownership is the way that most people begin their pathway to financial wealth and financial independence by owning their own homes. But for many minorities, this never happens. Disparities in fair housing. This is from the Seattle Post Intelligencer in January of 2007. Exclusion from federal mortgage programs, intentional discrimination in the siting of an assignment to public housing, exclusionary zoning laws, steering by real estate agents, redlining by mortgage lenders and property insurers, and racially biased appraisal practices are among the forces that account for segregated housing. Despite the integrated opportunities, there's still much housing in this country is still segregated and is segregated by these, by these processes. I wanted to take you back to incarceration for a minute. In 12 states, black men are incarcerated at rates between 12 to 16 times greater than whites. Now, blacks only represent 12% of the population, but they're incarcerated at 16 times the rate of whites. So that, that drives you to one of several conclusions. All black people are criminals, therefore you should watch your purse before I leave the room today. Or the court systems do not meter out justice equally. Or there are populations of men especially have little in the way of opportunity, options, ethics, role models and examples, education that allow them to work in other facets, and therefore we see these numbers. Some of all that may be true. 10 states, Latino men, are incarcerated at rates between five to nine times greater than those of white men. And in 15 states, blacks were sent to prison on drug charges at rates 20 to 50 times white men. You should know, health professionals, that there are two forms of cocaine sold for use in this, in this country. Powdered cocaine, which is snorted, and crack cocaine, rock cocaine, which is smoked. The laws, because of the crack epidemic and what it was doing in urban communities, our government 
pass laws that make the penalties for crack cocaine, which is primarily used by minorities, much harsher than the penalties that are for um, powder cocaine. Therefore, for an ounce of powder cocaine, you may do uh, four years, three years. For the same ounce of crack cocaine, it would be three times the, the sentence. So this is why you have people in jail for drug charges. By the way, isn't it interesting to, to us that we have acknowledged in this country that alcoholism is a disease and that alcohol is an addiction? And unless you drive and kill somebody in your car, we don't arrest alcoholics for possession of alcohol. But that we take drug addicts who are also a medical disease, who are equally addicted to substances much more powerful than alcohol, and we believe that our only recourse is to imprison them rather than to treat them. And so we continue to warehouse our sick in prisons and let others of other addictions go free. This is from Human Rights Watch. So when you look at all these issues, all of these, in all these areas that I've listed on the board, poor minority communities have more morbidity, more mortality, and higher incidence of disease in all these areas. The burden of disease in all these areas is higher. One has to ask the question, is this simply a coincidence? And whereas you can make a, 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 an argument that in one or two areas, this may be simply coincidental. It is hard to make that argument when you look at all of these areas, that it's only coincidental. If I had the time, for instance, I'd tell you one of the stories about, about hypertension in, in African-Americans. You should know that if you look at all African descendants on the planet, Africans who are African-American in this country have the highest blood pressure than any African diaspora on the planet. You say, why is that? Elijah Thomas, I think his name, came up with this theory. And his theory was, if you look at the Middle Passage years, the years in which slaves were brought from Africa to the United States on ships, there was an environmental and um, biological advantage to being a high sodium retainer. Because the major reason people died across those ships was dehydration. Imagine being stacked up in boats, laying in racks with the excrement from those at the top flowing down to those at the bottom and being allowed to come up once a day to get air so they could clean the hole of the boat and they splashed seawater on the slaves and they got a little drink of something. If you were a sodium retainer, your opportunity not to become dehydrated and allow your blood volume to go too low was, was better enhanced. If you were not a sodium retainer and you just passed you know, your um, isotonic urine out at a, at a faster rate, you became more dehydrated. So those who became dehydrated died first. The slaves had finally wound up arriving on this, on this country were high sodium retainers by the majority because they could survive. It was a survival benefit. Those of you who went to medical school in the last 20 years were told when you treat African-Americans with high blood pressure, your first line of defense is what? Salt restriction and diuretics. Because most African-Americans with high blood pressure are high sodium retainers. That was biological survival advantage. 
which means that's also part of why only in this country do we have the highest blood pressure among black people than on the planet because we have biologically um, selected a whole group of people who arrived here who could survive the passage tended to be high sodium retainers. That's one of the backgrounds of what you're dealing with when you deal with in the community. So I want to talk about planned obsolescence just for a moment. What do I mean by that? I'm basically saying when you see all that list of diseases, I believe the reason why these diseases are allowed to have such a high burden of disease in our communities is because of planned obsolescence. Now what do I mean by that? If you, given the excessive morbidity and mortality in racial and ethnic minorities in America, you could not kill or injure more people by design than we do in this country by malignant neglect. If you actually set out with the purpose of killing a bunch of people, you couldn't do a better job than we do just by letting the system run as it runs every day. Neglect to rotate your tires on your car could be considered benign. But neglect of whole populations can never be seen as benign and could suggest to some a malevolent intent. And that's what we're up against as ministers, health ministers of the gospel, when we look at populations and say, how do we minister? I was having a conversation earlier with one of my colleagues here. We were talking about the whole notion of our of our wellness and lifestyle centers, and I've been associated with some. Some of you have been also. One of the biggest criticisms that we all in the, in the lifestyle ministry understand is that most lifestyle ministry programs, both residential and outpatient programs, are only geared to those who can afford them because most of them are self-supported. So if you're poor on welfare, um, working in a plant, the where the average American is in terms of economics, the masses of people who are in this country could never afford our inpatient or our outpatient residential lifestyle treatment. So while we talk about lifestyle ministries, we have to understand that if we don't think outside the box, our lifestyle ministry only goes to one segment of the American population, which is a minority segment, and ignores the rest of the population of those who are just marginally educated, marginally employed, or even the average person. The person who makes that average income of $50,000 is not gonna pay you $5,000 to come into a residential program. They don't have it. It is not as much a matter of premeditated intent as a matter of failed surveillance, uncoordinated political processes, lack of public will, and the lack of genuine concern demonstrated by paralytic response. If you want to think about a perfect example of this in terms of our country, think about our response to Hurricane Katrina. If you think back to that, then I'll read failed surveillance, uncoordinated political process, lack of public will, lack of genuine concern. And that's what many people in our country see when they look at our government's response to their problems. And unfortunately, that's also what they see when they look at the church's response to community problems. The church can easily perpetrate this continued neglect if we only focus on individual lifestyle change. I'm only, and I mean that with the word only. Jesus said, this thou should have done and not left the other undone. Yes, we must be about lifestyle change. But I want us to begin to think about lifestyle change 
in a broader context of the society in which the people whose lives we're trying to change live every day. Our early Adventists who dared to support the abolitionist movement and the great temperance movement of the 19th century understood that freeing a single slave or bringing a single smoker or addict into recovery just wasn't enough by itself. They also attacked the institutions, the laws, and the societal norms that spawned those evils that they were now trying to save people from. So just helping one person's cholesterol, one person's blood sugar, one person's hypertension as individuals is not the total essence of the history and tradition of the Adventist health message. If we go all the way back to our early Adventist days, we also began to address the societal problems. We attacked smoking by not attacking smokers. We thought about the tobacco industry and what the industry is doing to people. And our greatest public health success in the last 50 years has really been the work that's been done in and around tobacco cessation. And it had very little to do with attacking smokers. It had everything to do with attacking the laws that how tobacco was used, sold, marketed in this country. I want to take you to Ministry of Healing and talk about the danger of complacency. Multitudes live in institutions and organizations that work and the, the organizations, the work of, leave to institutions and organizations, the work of benevolence. They excuse themselves from contact with the world and their hearts grow cold. They become self-absorbed and inexp inexpressible. Inexpressible? Because in an unimpressible is what the word should be. Love for God and man dies out in the soul. Is it possible for us to become actually disconnected from the world? My colleague here in emergency medicine can't get disconnected because the world meets him at his doorstep every day. They just come in by the droves. But, I, but in private practice, I had the opportunity, if I, did, if I wanted to choose that opportunity, I didn't have to meet the world. I could decide which category of patients I want to see. If I don't want to see Medi-Cal patients, I don't see Medi-Cal patients. If I don't want to see certain payer class, I don't see a certain payer class. And now with the advent of boutique medicine, where doctors can now say, look, for $5,000 a year, I'll take care of all your care. I'll even make house calls, but I won't accept private insurance. And there are people who are willing to pay for boutique medicine. They want a doctor they can call 24 hours a day. They want a doctor who comes and makes house calls. They want a doctor who has a nice, you know, Starbucks located in his office. They want all the amenities without any of the, the and they don't have to sit with those people in a waiting room. Ministry of Healing, 195. Real charity helps men to help themselves. But true beneficence means more than mere gifts. It means a genuine interest in the welfare of others. It, we should seek to understand the needs of the poor and distressed and give them the help that will benefit them most. To give thought and time and personal effort costs far more than really to give money. And it's the truest charity, helping people to help themselves. That is empowerment. And our ministry, if you look at what Jesus said about his ministry in Luke, that he had come to unloose the burdens and the heavy load, to, to set the captives free, he was talking about empowering people. In our lifestyle ministry, we empower the individual to take care of themselves. 
What we have stopped doing, or maybe have not started to do yet, is empower communities to take better care of themselves. I can drive through a certain, certain communities in, I'll give you two separate communities in LA. One will be Bel Air. How many have ever heard of Bel Air? It's in the Los Angeles area, very rich community. And the other community will be Watts. How many have heard of Watts? Okay. When I drive through Bel Air, I will be hard pressed to find any advertising signs on the streets advertising anything, but certainly not advertising liquor or tobacco or other things of that nature. In Watts, however, almost every other billboard advertises liquor and tobacco. In Watts, the two institutions that are most prolific on every corner are churches and liquor stores. In Bel Air, you're hard pressed to find a church because the average congregation can't afford the land to build one on. But when you do find a church, you won't find any liquor stores. You might find some liquor boutique, but they don't sell Budweiser there, right? They sell fine wines and other kind of things. So two separate communities with two different messages that are going to the residents of those communities. As an individual physician just working in your office, if you happen to be in Watts, you can't change what's going on in the milieu. You have to look at how you now connect with others to create a ministry that helps people to help themselves, that empowers a community to cast off the, the oppression of marketing and profiteering that happens on poor people all the time. So what I'm really talking about is a change paradigm. I propose that the linking of the gospel ministry and the health ministry must also utilize an ecological and environmental approach. Addressing key social determinants of health must become the mainstream strategy of public health intervention in poor communities of any ethnicity. Because these social determinants are responsible for the patient whose lifestyle you're now trying to change. And I'm talking about an interdisciplinary collaboration between doctors, ministers, social workers, law enforcement, educators, all working together in communities trying to make a change in the social milieu and the social determinants that those communities are facing. Now here is Christ's method. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. One of the problems that we've had in our churches is that too often we minister to the community's needs as we understand them and as we perceive them to be and not minister to what their needs are. I remember once we were running a five-day plan to stop smoking. And I opened this program up in our Watts Center in LA. We used to have a family center there and we, we wanted to have this program. I was going to Nickerson Gardens Housing Projects and other housing projects talking to people about our new plan to stop smoking. And a woman said to me, what are you talking about, stop smoking? She said, my son this morning was arrested and he's in jail. My daughter is pregnant and she's only 15. And now you want to take my, my cigarette away from me? And what, her, what she was thinking is, stopping smoking is not my biggest issue. That's your issue. My issue is how, how my son is going to get out of jail. 
My issue is how am I going to take care of this pregnant 16-year-old? What's going to happen to her? So what we were seeing as, well, we're going to change this woman's lifestyle. And by changing her lifestyle, we'll make her life better. She was saying, I don't think so. So it's not, a, it's not that we were wrong. It's just that we were irrelevant. So what is the point? The purpose of our health message, and many people have this twisted. We think our health message is about stuff that it's not about. The purpose of our health message is not to give sinful men and women greater longevity. Don't get confused by the Adventist health study. Yes, if you live a healthy lifestyle, you will live longer. By the way, I know it's going to come to you as a shock. Vegans, even vegans, die. So no matter what your lifestyle is, as long as you are born of sin and born of men, you will die. So the only, the, the longevity advantage of our health message is merely a byproduct. It's a side show. It's not the purpose for the health message. Its real purpose is to improve the function of our minds and bodies in order that we can help souls better apprehend the mind and voice of God. I get people healthy so they can better hear God speaking to them in these last days. The three angels message is going to require men and women to have clear thinking so they can apprehend what God is saying. So I want them not to be inebriated or encumbered by, by disease and illness, not to be able to think clearly. If they can't think clearly, then they can't hear God. Have you just looked at the political message we've been hearing the last few months? If you're not really thinking clearly, you recognize that what you're hearing from both sides is a lot of garbage. People stretching the truth and adding nuances that you can't even figure out. And you say, wait a minute, that's not 100% true. So they have these people on, in CNBC and, and CNN doing what they call fact checking. They're checking the facts. And if you listen to the fact checks week after week, you realize that half of what you heard was distortion. Well, if you were the devil, you'd be trying to distort everything that comes at people. And in these last days, if you can't think clearly, you won't be saved. That's what the health message is about. And if you think it's just about making helping people live longer, why, if I'm living miserably, do I want to live longer? It is not to bring God down to men. We somehow think that because we or vegans or vegetarians or whatever we are, that we are now, God is now closer to us because God only loves people who don't eat eggs or only loves people who don't eat meat. But it's not about bringing God down. It's about helping men and women reach up to God. It doesn't earn you any points in heaven. It gives you the access to heaven by having a clear mind to understand. So Paul talks about it in Romans by having a renewed mind. The last call to contextual ministry. Our health ministry is not only to be connected to our preaching, but is to prepare the way into lives of those who suffer around us. To only address disease without addressing the social determinants of health is a form of what I believe is malpractice. And as we, as the group Amen, we cannot be found guilty of forgetting that people that we serve come out of a social context. And unless we're finding ways to address that social context, what we're doing to them won't work. It makes no sense to send the newly recovered, 
back into toxic and unhealthy environments and then expect him to thrive. So if you take that woman, and I heard the example earlier today, in the halfway house, filled with drug dealers, getting her off drugs, doesn't make sense to put her back in a halfway house filled with drug, drug users. And that's what we're doing every time we take someone and try to clean up their lifestyle, but let them go back in their life into communities that work against that. So our challenge is not to choose one approach over the other. I'm not here to advocate one approach over the other. Our challenge is to seek the salvation and restoration of the image of God in human flesh by confronting the chains that bind and the chains that destroy. It is combining lifestyle medicine, the gospel truth, with empowered communities. This ministry cannot be done by any of us as individuals. You can see patients and talk about lifestyle all day in your offices or in small groups, but if we're going to change the social determinants in the communities where we serve, we must learn to link with people from other disciplines and then work for solutions that empower communities and do not impose solutions on communities. This is what we're teaching in public health. This is what we, unfortunately, we're not taught in medical school. And it's what we need to be teaching in our churches. The church should be the center of the societal change and should be the leader in that, working with the physicians and nurses and dentists who are in those congregations or around those congregations. So while we change dietary habits, we also work together in communities to make sure that food is available to those communities that is healthy and wholesome and cost-effectively purchased. And if the only bananas that a community can buy come from a five-and-dime liquor store, where they want to charge you 75 cents per banana, then what family is going to buy that food at those prices when they only see $1,000, $1,500 a month total in income? That is our challenge. The challenge of taking what we do for the individual and then asking the hard question, where did that person come from? Where are they going back to when they leave my, my care? One man said, where a person stands is wholly dependent on where he was sitting before they stood. Where people are in your office is wholly dependent on where they came from before they found you in your office. If we don't start thinking about these determinants that affect the health of people and health of congregations, then we will have missed our major opportunity so no, we can never do away with lifestyle medicine. I am advocating that to our lifestyle individual medicine, we begin to think collaboratively in community about changing and addressing these social determinants. Thank you. Amen.